Continuing where we left off last week, we'll start at verse 12 this morning and read down through verse 18. And young Christians, young theologians, remember that Paul is writing a letter to the church and he's in jail. But what does he think about jail? How does he feel about it? And then for the rest of us, for adults, Paul is going to write to us about weakness and the way Jesus uses our weakness. But what I want you to know is... This isn't a new idea, and in fact, later today or later this week, I want you to go back and read the psalm that we heard read to us this morning. Psalm 105 says exactly the same thing. Paul just makes it a little bit more personal, but the narrative and the way God works hasn't changed. This is the good news of Jesus who works in us and through us unexpectedly. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that that it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Let's pray. We thank you, O Lord God, that the way you work with us and in us hasn't changed through all the years of human history. Always you have worked in the same way. In our weakness, you give strength. And now give it again as we hear of the mysterious and wonderful ways Jesus works in our lives. Ways which many times we wish he wouldn't employ But if we have our eyes open and our hearts softened to know the truth of it, maybe, maybe like Paul, we can rejoice. Give to us these things and for them we'll give you thanks. And we ask it all in the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Amen. And would you be seated? Paul has turned up missing. He has been wanting to go all the way to Spain. Spain is as far west as anybody can travel. In the ancient world, for all anybody knew, Spain was the end of the world. And it's always been Paul's plan to go as far as he can go, and along the way telling people of the good news of Jesus and planting churches. But then Paul disappears in the trail goes cold. So the Philippian church, worried for Paul, worried for the pastor who planted their church, the shepherd who loves them and cares for them, they send one of their own members, a man named Epaphroditus, out to find Paul like an investigative reporter. Epaphroditus was like Henry Morgan Stanley sent by the New York Herald to find the missionary doctor, David Livingston. It only took him 
eight months of hacking through the forests of Central Africa to find Livingston. Epaphroditus searches and searches, asks for news of Paul from city to city, and finally he finds Paul arrested, imprisoned in either Ephesus or Rome. Scholars have narrowed it down to those two cities. And so now Paul is writing this letter to send back home to Philippi with Epaphroditus. He'll give news to the church worried for him as to how he's faring. And he opens this section of the letter with an interpretation of his circumstances. Paul theologizes his circumstances. I want you to know, brothers, that what's happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Can I let you in? on this secret interpretive key to all of our theology, it's no more complicated than this. Everything that happens to us serves to advance the gospel. We just don't have the faith for it. We forget it. And so we need to say it out loud very often. But here's how Paul says it, wrapped inside his own situation. Prison is my new pulpit. Prison has given to me a new preaching voice, a new sermonic opportunity. Paul says his imprisonment has not done what we would expect. It has not stopped the gospel. In fact, the phrase that he uses, through my imprisonment the gospel is advanced. In that phrase, Paul is meaning to say, That the gospel is pushed on in spite of obstruction and danger. The phrase was used to communicate that someone would be able to continue even though the way of a traveler was blocked. It meant to be forced from the road only to make more ground. It reminds me of the story of John Calvin. Calvin had been condemned by the church for his Reformation views his Protestant views, and so he decides he's going to go off to an early retirement in a lakeside cottage somewhere. He's going to study, and he's going to write, and he's going to stay conveniently out of the fight. Calvin was going to do in his day what in our time would be the equivalent to blogging. That's his plan. So, on the road to his seclusion, he's forced from the highway by war. Two aristocratic households are fighting for control of Europe. And Calvin pulls off the road into a little city called Geneva. And this is where it all starts. In Geneva, there's another pastor named William Farrell. He's a reformer. He has Protestant views. And Farrell hears that the great Calvin is staying in town. So he finds where Calvin has rented a room. And he knocks on the door. And Calvin brings Farrell in. After introductions are made, Farrell insists that Calvin has to stay in Geneva and help further the Reformation and from Geneva throughout all of Europe. And Calvin says, no thanks, I've got this nice little place and I'm going to go sneak off to it and study and write pamphlets and live quietly. Farrell will not take no for an answer. He points a finger in Calvin's face and says, If you don't stay and help me with the Reformation, God's sending you to hell. Now that's a little bit oversold. 
little overstated, but Calvin bought it. He fell for it. He stayed in Geneva, and the Reformation continued, and the church grew in the gospel. Calvin was forced from his chosen road because Jesus is never forced from his. And Paul understands this, and he says that the gospel is not obstructed by his imprisonment. Actually, his imprisonment has done the opposite. It's speeded up the gospel mission in a way no planning, no strategizing ever could. The good news of Jesus has moved into a sphere that has never received it, Paul writes. The gospel's now running like shockwaves, like deep tremors through the praetorium, the imperial headquarters where Paul is being held. The entire imperial guard knows that he's imprisoned for the sake of Christ. They know why he's there. They're talking about why this man is held imprisoned. And Paul says, I may be the prisoner, but I have a captive audience. And it gets better outside of the prison. My brothers on the outside are more bold in their proclamation because of my being jailed. They say to themselves, if Paul can proclaim the gospel so freely and boldly, even in chains, then we can do the same on the outside. And if we end up on the inside, well, even then it doesn't stop. And it's even better still, Paul says, more preachers have shown up on the scene. This is the puzzling mention in verse 15 and continued in verse 17 of some who are preaching Jesus out of rivalry with Paul. They're preaching to afflict Paul in his imprisonment. The Greek word for affliction there means to have the skin rubbed or worn away from the chains that you're wearing. These preachers are preaching to give Paul an unsoothable soreness. But what exactly is this competitive preaching? It probably means that this group of preachers is embarrassed by Paul's imprisonment. Embarrassed by his weakness. They think that this is going to discredit the Christian message and make it unappealing. And so they use a rival missionary strategy. One that showcases skill and proficiency and excellence and image and success, all the things that need little translation in any human culture. But Paul says, ah, who cares? Let him preach. Jesus is being proclaimed. It doesn't matter what their motives are. It matters what Jesus intends by it. It doesn't matter what kind of Christianity they're trying to present It matters what Jesus reveals of himself. Jesus is preached. And really Jesus is preaching himself. So trust his good sovereignty to overcome bad motives and immature theology. This doesn't hurt me at all. I'm glad for it, Paul says. In the gospel that Paul believed and taught and wrote about and preached and lived, he had a thoroughly developed theology of weakness. In another place, Paul wrote to another church, Jesus said to me, my power is made perfect in your weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. 
For for the sake of Christ, then, I'm content with weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and calamities. For when I'm weak, then I am strong. When I am weak, I have the strength of Christ, which is better than my own strength at its strongest. When I am weak, then I have more of His gospel, not less. That's what makes Philippi perfect for this letter. Philippi was a city built from strength. It sat in northern Greece. It was founded 400 years before Paul by Philip II of Macedonia, the father of Alexander the Great. The rule was that conquerors would name cities after themselves only if they were cities of importance. It was an ego trip, you understand. And Philip named Philippi after himself because it was the place where Asia and Europe met. It was the gateway between East and West. And that's what makes Philippi such a significant church in Paul's ministry. It was the first church in Europe. From there, Paul could plant churches in Rome and hopefully someday in Spain. All the other churches he'd planted to this point were in Asia Minor. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. 200 years after Philip, 200 years still before Paul, the Romans conquer Philippi. And it was most famous as the site where Mark Antony and Octavian caught up with and took vengeance on Brutus and Cassius for assassinating Julius Caesar. Because the city had a rich military heritage, it became a popular retirement spot for Roman soldiers and commanders. And don't forget the Asian influence still pouring into the city. All of that should help explain what Bible readers know of the city of Philippi from Acts 16, where Paul meets three very different people in rapid-fire succession, Lydia and the Philippian jailer and the Pythoness. Lydia is Asian, but Philippi is the perfect city for her to set up business because she could sell a lot of purple cloth to honorably retired military heroes. The Philippian jailer was a retired Roman soldier, something along the rank of a sergeant, and he was given the job of jailer for distinguished service in the military campaigns he fought. And the Pythoness, the slave girl who tells fortunes with the spirit of a snake living inside of her, she is a mystic from Asia. Asia and Europe blending together through geography and culture. And at the end of Acts chapter 16, all these three and their households, their families, whoever was attached to them, whoever belonged to them, were brought together to be the church. But it's not because of background. It's not that they share customs. It isn't because of their social class or their socioeconomic status. It's not because of their education levels or their intellect is the same. They're brought together to be the church in the love and forgiveness that all three equally need. Lydia is a God-fearer, meaning 
She's a Gentile who believes the Jewish scriptures and she keeps the Jewish observances. But she's missing the Messiah that the Jewish scriptures and observances point to. She still needs Jesus. The jailer was worshipping a a religion of law of his own. He believed in a religion of self-salvation, eked out in moral duty and honor and loyal service. Ask nothing of anyone else and do all that's asked of you. And the slave girl worships demonic powers. And what makes them a church is not outward likeness. Not at all. What makes them a church is an inward likeness of heart. They all need the love and the calling of a Savior. Here's the point. Paul couldn't have put these people together if he tried. Paul is not a genius in bringing people together to be the church. It was the power and the ability of Jesus speaking through Paul's willing weakness. And now in the letter, Paul is further theologizing his weakness for the church in Philippi. And he's making the case that his chains and his cell have become a gospel megaphone. Because that's how the Savior proclaims himself. So don't you be embarrassed by your weaknesses, Philippians. Because the gospel always chooses and always works through weakness. A baby cradled inhospitably in a manger. The scandal of a cross, the heaviness of a tomb, all things that are hard to look at, things we instinctively want to turn away from. But in these weaknesses, we are saved. The gospel chooses weakness, the weakest weakness, to shock and startle us that our strength is nothing Our strength is like running in place and dead lifting air. The gospel uses weakness to laugh at our strength and to make us weep for it. The gospel chooses weakness, the weakest weakness, to shock and startle us with the big-hearted, tender-handed power of God. Incarnation means our God is strong enough to redeem, not just to judge and condemn. But to judge and condemn sin by reconciling what was lost to Him. Judging and condemning sin by reconciling what had disowned Him. Crucifixion means our God is strong enough to atone all wrongs. Those we have plotted and carried out in coldness, those that we're entirely oblivious to, which are no less sins. There are crimson drops for all of them seeping from Jesus' self-given body. An unyielding tomb, plundered and looted by resurrection, means that our God has the strength and the power to steal us away from death by turning death against itself, by using death on itself. The gospel is... In all our weakness, we have all God's saving and sanctifying strength. And all you need to do is stop passing yourself off as strong. In the gorgeous documentary, Man on Wire, about the illegal tightrope walk of Philippe 
petite between the north and south towers of the World Trade Center in 1974. There is this moving archival footage of Philippe practicing his high wire skill on a cable he's strung across a field in the French countryside before leaving his home to go carry out his stunt in New York City. And in one scene, Philippe is leading his girlfriend across the wire. But here's the catch. Annie, his girlfriend, was not a tightrope walker. It was beautiful gospel imagery. Philippe walking the wire with his ballast pole sticking out like elongated arms on either side of him. And Annie behind him with her hands on his shoulders, and when he stepped, she stepped with him. His smoothness became her smoothness. It took away her jerks and seizures of panic and fear. His steadiness kept her from throwing her weight back and forth across the wire they walked. But Annie could only walk the wire in Philippe. She couldn't take the pole up and walked the wire on her own. Her weakness was folded into his strength. And even more than that, through her weakness, her hanging on to him with only a negative ability, meaning that if she fell from the cable, she would pull him down with her. Because of her weakness, the viewer gets to see just how competent and skilled he was Her weakness in the footage actually shows off his strength. And the gospel does exactly the same in us. And so for Paul, weakness is his most useful ministry tool, which is unusual because Paul is gifted. He was trained by the famous rabbi Gamaliel. He's a scholar. He's sharp-minded. He was a practitioner of Judaism through diligence to the law. He was a fire breather. No one could keep up with Paul. He was a climber. He could have gone as high in Judaism as he cared to go. There was no ceiling for him. He built a career with the high-profile ambition of stomping Christianity out and putting an end to the Jesus myth. But then the resurrected Jesus blocked Paul's way one day. The glorified Jesus revealed himself to Paul. He was no myth. He was the good news. The fulfillment of the law that Paul thought he was keeping on his own. The forgiveness Paul didn't know he needed. The peace Paul didn't know he was missing. And Paul was converted. And from there, you would fully expect Paul to be gifted for Jesus. And in many ways he was. He was still a brilliant theologian. He took Jewish and Christian theologies to frontiers never explored as he came to know the fullness of Jesus. He was a prolific writer. Paul pens most of the letters in the New Testament. An insightful apologist and evangelist. A fearless preacher. A tireless church planner filling whole regions with congregations. Inasmuch as Paul was a celebrity in his former Judaism, he is the celebrity in his newfound Christianity. But he doesn't want celebrity. 
not interested in the least. Paul boasted in weakness. He didn't claim to be able to think circles around everyone else inside and outside of the church, though clearly he could. If you're building a ministry on intellect, you're building it on the wrong stuff. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, I didn't come among you with words of eloquent wisdom. I didn't speak to dazzle you or impress you or be quoted. I came preaching a naked Jew nailed to a stake. That's weakness. He didn't claim to be more fervent and hardworking than anyone else, though clearly he was. No one has ever labored for the church the way Paul did. He didn't claim to be charming or winsome or magnetic, although everywhere he went, his name was known and he drew crowds. Paul only claimed to know that he needed Jesus more than anyone else he knew. His only claim in life was that he needed Jesus more than anyone else. And that's why Jesus made Paul's ministry powerful. He was upfront about being weak. And being weak was his strength. Jesus preaches himself loudest and clearest in our weakness because... When we are weak, there isn't enough self left to throw in the way anymore. And Jesus never has too little self to be our saving recreation. When Jesus inserts himself, when Jesus inserts his perfection through our weakness, we're set free from our own useless striving, our own polluted motives, our own short-sightedness and lack of faith and understanding, our own fumbling sovereignty that always turns out to be mishandling and misuse and mismanagement and misliving. Weakness is our most pure access to the gospel and probably, if we have the faith to know it, our most undistracted enjoyment of the gospel. We have no reason to be embarrassed by our weakness because Jesus ministers to us in our weakness and he ministers to others out of our weakness. This is what makes Christianity most compelling and what other faiths don't have to offer. The gospel story is a full admission of the self, a full acceptance of the self. It says to us, you are weak, And incredibly needy, but you are loved. In Christianity, your inability is not shamed or exploited, but your particular weaknesses are embraced by the Savior. He takes them to Himself to shine through them. There is no more honest or full embrace of people in their true condition anywhere. A Savior who wants all of me, including my untampered, undoctored, unbeautified weaknesses, is a Savior that I want to give all of myself to. What He asks, I want to desire. Christianity is also the only gospel that doesn't subtly or slyly encourage me to idealize myself, to idolize myself. 
Because I'm loved in my particular weaknesses, I don't ever have to pretend to be something I'm not. I don't ever have to force myself to be something I can't. I don't have to blush about my weaknesses or hide them or make excuses for them or work them off. The gospel in Jesus never asks me to fix myself or make myself better by some self-effort. It asks me only to be loved by a Savior who is not sparing with His love. A Savior who is not withholding of His love. And that's what transforms me in heart and mind and habits. Jesus has no interest, none, in the idealized me, because the idealized me isn't true. It's the grossest, crudest fiction there is. Jesus is only interested in the redeemed me. Redeemed from weakness in His strength. But how freeing that the way Jesus is Lord over even my weaknesses does not throw me into the hidden trap of making another idol to chain myself to. The way Jesus is Lord over my weaknesses doesn't throw me into the trap of making myself into my worst and cruelest idol. And for those of us who care not just to be ministered to, but also to minister to others, don't forget that Paul doesn't see his weakness as a disqualifier the way his rivals do. It's an ally. It's an asset. It's the gospel in high definition. Let's say it this way. Jesus has given you a ministry. You just don't want it. Jesus has already given to you a ministry, but you've missed it because you want Jesus to play to your strengths but he plays to his strengths instead, and those come out in your weaknesses. You have likely missed the ministry Jesus has for you because you want to look capable and gifted and competent and titanic, unsinkable, above any dependence of any kind, but Jesus only wants you to look Loved, that's where Jesus ministers most powerfully through you. And that only comes out when you're weak. Instead of ministering from your strength, you should minister from Jesus' strength. If you want to see the gospel advancing the way Paul saw it doing in his life and his work, then all you have to do, all you have to do, is stop advancing yourself. And to the degree that we grasp this and believe this and practice this, we'll be burning through our neighborhoods and our city with the gospel of Jesus. Because people are desperate. Desperate to know what no other sphere in their lives assures them. That their weakness does not win them an instant rejection. Our loved weakness wins for us rejoicing. Unspeakable joy, Paul says at the close of these verses. It wins for us a rejoicing that's hard to quantify 
and measure. I know I've told you this story plenty of times, but it's one of my favorites. It's always worth repeating. So I'm going to tell you again. Alexander White was a pastor of Free St. George's in Edinburgh, Scotland in the 1800s. He was a great preacher, popular throughout the city. And one year, White took on an intern, a seminary student, who came to study under him and to apprentice and train under him. It turns out that the intern was a gifted preacher himself. And the more he preached, the better he got. He was better than White, even, was what people were saying through town. One Sunday, the intern was scheduled to preach in White's place, and News of his preaching engagement spread through the city and the crowds came out in droves. People were squeezed into the pews, stacked into the balcony, hanging in at the windows to hear the intern. And the time for the sermon came and the intern climbed the steps into the raised pulpit. A dozen steps or so. And he walked the steps slowly and deliberately with his chest out and his chin high. And he stood in the pulpit looking out over the congregation commandingly. And then he read his passage with more affect than usual, more theatrics than he would usually read with. And as soon as he was done reading the passage, he forgot his sermon. Every word of it. His mind went dark and blank. We know what happened there. Jesus did that to him. Well, he had to say something, so he stammered and tripped over his words, trying to pull together something that looked like a sermon, sounded like a sermon. It was a painful, disjointed mess. And when he was finished, when he decided that finally it was time to quit, he climbed down out of the pulpit with his head hanging and his shoulders slumped. He was deflated. White closed the service, benedicted the congregation, went to the door of the church, greeted people, thanked them for coming, sent them out with the love of Jesus one last time. Then he locked the place up and he went to find his intern, his humiliated intern, hiding in the back rooms of the church somewhere. When White found him, the man was sitting in a chair with his face buried in his hands. White pulled a chair up opposite him, pulled his hands away from his face, held them in his own, and looked into the intern's watery eyes. And he said, If you had gone up the way you came down, you might have come down the way you went up. When we put our own strengths forward, we're preaching ourselves, and no one's listening. It isn't worth hearing. There isn't any saving love preached when we preach ourselves. But when we put our weaknesses forward, not manufactured weaknesses, but the ones we already have, or the ones that Jesus unexpectedly but delightfully gives to us, When we put those weaknesses forward, we are preaching the saving strength of Jesus and people lean in close, desperate to hear it. 
And I hope Jesus makes you great preachers. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Now, Lord Jesus, give to us the joy and the grace of the gospel that isn't intimidated or even repulsed by our weakness. That you love us in weakness and you use our weakness. You embrace it, take it to yourself, and shine through it. Ah, allow us to see you work in this way, choosing weakness, so that we can't muddy the message with too much ego and self. But instead, the power of God is proclaimed and demonstrated as the only power that saves those who are lost, the only power that keeps those who are needy. And so, for the grace that you have given to us in our various needs, we give you thanks. Allow us to rejoice more and more and read your work in and through us with the same insight and faith that Paul was able to read it as you were at work in and through him. For all these things, we'll give you thanks and we ask them all in the Father and the Son and the Spirit.